0: Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Hello, welcome. I am Larry Jacobs, a professor at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs, where I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is bringing you today's program. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program Timely Conversations, Rent Stabilization, Ballot Initiatives. Um, here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, there's going to be an election on Tuesday this coming Tuesday, November 2nd. Timely Conversations is a format that we use that allows a distinguished university faculty member to enter into dialogue with a policymaker and advocate. Today's topic is going to be ballot questions at St. Paul, Minneapolis, regarding the stabilization of rent. The important topics that we're gonna be covering today will be what is the problem and what is being proposed. Why did it develop? And what's the history behind the issues surrounding rent and housing? We're also gonna be talking about the campaigns and and debate over rent stabilization in Minneapolis and St. Paul. We're very fortunate to have at the Humphrey School, uh, Professor Ed Goetz. He's a professor of urban and regional planning here at the Humphrey Schools. He specializes in housing and local community development and planning and policy. He's served on a number of local and national advisory committees regarding affordable housing and community development. He's director at the Humphrey School and University of Minnesota of the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs. Um, He's the author of one of the studies on rent stabilization in Minneapolis. In addition, Dr. Getz has published four books, um, Shelter Burden, published in 1993, Clearing the Way, was published in 2003 and won a distinguished award from the Planning Association. In 2013, he published New Deal Ruins. And then in 2018, he published The One Way Street of Integration. Joining Dr. Goetz will be Jennifer Arnold, who's director of Inclinex, excuse me, United Renters for Justice, which developed out of the Lindale Neighborhood Association. Um, Ms. Arnold is well known for her work in helping tenants living in apartment buildings to get organized and she's been quite active in the debate and um, uh, campaigns relating to rent stabilization, uh, the ballot initiative here in the Twin Cities. Without further ado, I welcome my
1: colleague, Dr. Ed Getz. Thank you very much, uh, Larry, for that um, uh, introduction and it's my pleasure to be here uh, today. It's also my great pleasure to be able to speak with Jennifer Arnold. Uh, welcome to you too, uh, Jennifer. I thought we would start at the beginning, uh, uh, so to speak, and and talk a little bit about where we find ourselves right now um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a crisis of affordable housing. Um, You know, more than half of all renter households with children across the country are paying more than 30 percent of their income on on housing. It's a it's a widespread crisis of affordability and it's a deep uh, crisis of affordability. And your organization is an organization of of renters. And and so, you know, what is it that you're hearing about uh, about people's experiences out there?
2: yeah i I guess the first thing that comes up for me is, um, I have in this campaign season faced the question about you know, doesn't it mean that rents are affordable, that people keep paying them uh, and And so I think what comes up when you first ask that question is that housing is different than other goods on the market, right? because it because it's a necessity for families. and so what it looks like for families is Making it work at all costs, and that means doubling up. That means having a lot of people in one place. That means getting another job. Um, really finding any way to to make it work. Um, and I think that puts immense strain on families. Um, so, and another thing that I think of is the way that I've seen. You know, you all have studied and, and documented the way that neighborhoods in Minneapolis have changed. But even in my organizing in the last six years, we've seen it. Um, So some of the first buildings that we organized in in Minneapolis were um, there's a set of apartment buildings between Lake and 31st, Pillsbury and Pleasant. There's like 10 buildings there that we've organized in for six, seven years. And at the beginning, they were entirely Latino buildings, um, Latino families living there. And now I would say of the families that we first started working with, there's probably 25% or 20% that are still there. Um, and the folks moving in are, are, are generally not people of color. They tend to be white people with dogs, um, which is noticeable for, for the families that are still there that were originally there. Um, and really, you know, it means folks are moving to find a place that's more affordable. Uh, to Richfield, to other places. And those moves are really disruptive for families, right? And for people's jobs, because most of the folks that we work with, not, you know, a lot of folks we work with don't have uh, cars. And so public transportation is the option. So it's really disruptive to have to move, um, especially to a different part of the city.
1: Right, and so, uh, and so you're seeing more displacement uh, in, the, uh, in the local market over the last five to 10 years?
2: We've definitely seen it. Yeah. You know, it's really hard to, to name cause we're not tracking it in a statistical way, but you know, when I look around, so, so Inquilino started out of work that I was doing in the Lindell neighborhood 10 years ago and the Lindell neighborhood at the time. Um, I mean, and it's very different than what it was. Uh, there were definitely pockets of, of strong pockets of the Latino community in that neighborhood. And I see that changing I've seen that changing in the last ten years in a really noticeable way.
1: Right, right. And uh, some of the research that we've done up at Kira included uh, um, looking at some of these patterns of gentrification that uh, have occurred, and uh, we do see it in uh, parts of the north side, parts of the south side, as you've described, and and parts of uh, of Saint Paul as well. Um, and where do you, where do you see uh, the families moving to? Where are they finding uh, alternative places?
2: With the Latino community in, in, in Lindale, we've seen a lot of people move to Richfield and Bloomington. Um, I think folks have tried to stay around the neighborhood and, and do when they can. And also a lot of our original members have moved to Richfield and Bloomington. Um, And that means like I named initially, you know, I'm thinking of a family specifically where it it means a a upheaval in the school for for kids and a job change for parents, because um, that's quite far away from from where folks were before. Um, Yeah, we've had quite a few members who, who have moved south.
1: The, the, the first point that you made regarding uh, being able to pay your rent and, and uh, demonstrating therefore that it's, it's affordable, um, you know, researchers who look at that talk about a concept they call shelter poverty, which is the, oftentimes your rent is the first thing you have to pay so that you, uh, you keep a roof over your uh, head but uh, leaving you insufficient funds for the rest of the month for the various other expenses that, uh, that the family has. So people, uh, even people who aren't displaced are actually feeling that crunch of uh, affordability as well. How does, it, uh, how does that show up?
2: Yeah, I, I think that um, that concept is really helpful actually. And, and I think of a couple different things when I think of that. First of all, yeah. I mean, I think the way it shows up is people double up, right? People, children move back in with their parents. Uh, families move in together so that they're, you know, I. it's very common within our membership that a family of five is living in the one bedroom apartment, for example. You know, people do what they have to do to get by. Um, and it does mean that there are impacts on the family, right? Everybody's like real pushed in next to each other, um, or, or someone's renting a space that's not really supposed to be rented. Um, but it, but like you were saying, it's because it is, it is the thing that gets paid first. I think the other things that you see as a result of that are food insecurity for families, um, not having all of the supplies for school, you know, the, those, those needs play out because people know they have to pay rent first. Um, The other thing that comes up for me is that oftentimes landlords use um, credit scores to determine if someone else, someone is safe to rent to or not. And like you were naming, that's not usually actually a good indicator because people pay rent first. So even if they have debt from other things and a bad credit score, that doesn't mean they're not going to pay rent um, because it is so crucial for families that they pay their rent.
1: Right. So this this doubling up um, it's it's in many cases in many ways really the the, the kind of hidden um, uh, problem of our of our uh, housing market. Uh, national uh, estimates are that uh, up to twelve percent of households um, uh, double up um, at any given point in time, which is. You know nationally millions of people and you know our own research has shown that this strains the relationships on both sides right it's very difficult to be the host family it's very difficult to be the family that is uh, that is moving in um uh what's what what do you um uh, is, is this something that's happening more frequently
2: It's hard to say exactly, um, but, you know, it's, I guess what comes up for me is also like alternative economies when you name that, right? Like fa- families are looking for whatever makes it work. So we, when we organize in buildings, you know, the, the strategy that we always use is that we talk to everybody renting from the same landlord and we get everyone together and we say, uh, what what do you need? What do you need from your landlord what's happening in your building you're the expert you know what's happening here and and we always come up with a similar list right the repair issues that are problematic throughout the city are kind of uh the same there's infestations of bed bugs cockroaches mice uh sometimes rats uh their people are treated poorly by the owner um And then increasing rents, which are happening all the time. And inevitably, when we do that process, there can their neighbor tensions show up. And neighbor tensions show up because of issues in the alternative economy that I I would name. And I would include having to double up as as part of that, right? Like it, it just puts strain on all the relationships. So doubling up is part of that. I I ran into a case of like someone selling meat out of their freezer in their home. You know, there's many versions of the alternative economy that show up. And this happens again, because people are doing everything that they can to stay in their home and to stay stable. Um, And so organizing in rental buildings requires more than just uh, organizing people against their landlord. It's also organizing for solidarity and understanding for those things as they show up.
1: and we haven't even uh, talked about the pandemic yet. Um, uh, and so uh, I think it's, it's fairly widely known that um, there were real concerns about uh, a kind of tsunami of evictions coming as people's incomes were interrupted by the pandemic. That was stayed perhaps uh, uh, for some period of time by the moratorium on evictions. The uh, the federal government and the and, and local governments have tried to get emergency assistance to uh, to tenants. Um, I guess I would ask uh, what you can tell us about whether those policy responses have been effective.
2: Uh, I, mixed results, right? I had I had phone calls during the pandemic. I would say some of the hardest times in the pandemic were when we were getting phone calls from folks who didn't have food and called us because they thought that we could support them with rent. I remember having a conversation with a woman who who, who said, I heard I could call you about my rent. And I said, do you have food in your house? And she said, no. Um, so the eviction moratorium was a was a good thing. And Because it was a month to month situation here in Minnesota, it wasn't something that people felt like they could count on. They always were scrambling to find, to make up that rent. And, you know, there were a lot of families that didn't qualify for other kinds of support. And so we're doing that scrambling while they also didn't have basic necessities for their kids. And it was uh, that pressure was terrible. You know, we had been advocating at, at that time to cancel rent. And really, it was about taking the pressure away from that landlord tenant relationship, where tenants always felt like, even if there was a moratorium, they always felt like, I, I need to be responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean? So we knew of families that went into debt to pay the rent, the credit card debt, other kinds of debt, which is actually really scary. Um, I met people in Powderhorn Park who had been evicted by assault by their landlord, right? So there was an eviction moratorium, but the landlord assaulted the tenant and locked him out. And, uh, you know, by the time I met him, there was nothing we could do to reverse that. Um, so we know that these policies were good. And we also know that there were a lot of people who didn't know about them and a lot of landlords who didn't care. A lot of evictions that happen don't happen in court. So, even though there couldn't be court proceedings, it didn't mean landlords couldn't evict tenants. And it, it did happen during the pandemic. And we saw an increase in, in our population living outside during the pandemic. And there's no doubt that that was why. I mean, I met people that that was why. And now, you know, our organization and organizations like ours have been talking to folks who have applied for assistance. And that assistance has been so slow so confusing, so difficult to access. And so we are still concerned about, you know, the, the eviction moratorium off-ramp sort of happened in waves and we're still watching in a really close way about what this means for our membership. And more importantly, people who aren't connected to organizations like ours. Um, because you know, we, like I said earlier, we, we work with people who all rent from the same landlord and we work with people over a long period of time. So we work with people for repairs, but then we work when there's rent increases and when there's evictions and we're like a, a place people can go to actually fight back against those things. But most tenants don't have that option. You know, you can get legal help. But by the time you're in court, it's it's a it's a really scary situation and much more challenging.
1: And um the, the slowness of the of the emergency rental assistance has been a problem really across the country um, yeah. and i think it uh, has to do with the ability to create an infrastructure for for moving that assistance in in a timely manner it's been uh, unfortunate that um that's been such a challenge in so many different places
2: yes that's totally right i think that i mean the other thing i want to point to we haven't really talked about all this but this housing crisis, which was exacerbated by the pandemic is years in the making, you know, this this started with when there were disinvestment, there was major disinvestment in public housing, um, specifically in the eighties and and before that, and the move from public housing to funding affordable housing tax credits, and really what that has meant for the longevity of, of, and the government's investment in, Housing as infrastructure, as a as as a need for community, and and so we're in this place where it's a serious crisis that has been created by a long term issue. Um, so as we talk about rent stabilization, I think it's important to understand that context.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, various changes in our public policy approach to housing have um, have in in the end sort of reduced our. Uh, uh, our commitment to uh, affordable housing, uh, compared to um, where it stood in, in, in previous generations, um, and but I think part of it is also uh, a uh, an income uh, problem, right? We have we have uh, steadily rising costs of operating housing, of building housing. Um, but in many cases, uh, especially for uh, a, a particular uh, segment of the population, uh, incomes just haven't uh, haven't kept pace. And and so, uh, so given that kind of scenario, um, I mean, we can talk about uh, reinvigorating uh, public housing uh, for building uh, new affordable housing. We can talk about the limitations of the tax credit program that you uh, describe. Uh, many of the uh, housing units that are uh, built through the tax credit program are not seen as being all that affordable uh, in some neighborhoods, right? Even you know, when you're using the income limits that apply to that program, unless you're layering on additional subsidies, you're not really producing housing um. That's going to be affordable to people with, you know, at thirty or forty percent of the uh, of the median income nearby. So, how does rent stabilization then sort of fit into the toolbox of uh, of things that we have to uh, to address this situation?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of naming it. It's one tool in the toolbox. I think it's a it's a cornerstone. It's an important tool. Um, And and I want to name a little bit why. I think, first of all, rent stabilization is so basic that people think it already exists. Like our membership, I can't tell you how many times our membership has called saying, hey, my rent's going up $300. How is that legal? Right. Like it feels so violating to have your rent increased in exorbitant amount. Um, it's like minimum wage, right? It just feels like it should already be there because it's so patently unfair to have such a huge rent increase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always had to say, yeah, that's that's rent control or rent stabilization, and we don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's a it's like it's a basic policy that can serve as a as a protection against price gouging these huge jumps in rent increases that we see. Um, you know, we've worked in buildings where that kind of rent increase has displaced everybody living there, right? That And that happened in Crossroads when it turned to concierge. You know, that is a practice that is done that is really disruptive for an entire community when it happens. And so a rent stabilization policy is protection against that kind of, that kind of exorbitant increase. And um, it doesn't, it's not going to solve the housing crisis and it is the most cost-effective, universal policy that can have the biggest impact um, on rent prices because it is something that can that can that can cover all rental housing um, and serve as that protection. So I would say it's the band-aid we need while we while we fix the crisis using other tactics as well right It is a it is a short-term solution that helps us implement the other things that we need to do to really impact the housing market. And in the interim, it keeps people where they live, right? So this problem I named about what, what I see in Lindale is with the rent stabilization policy, those families could have stayed in place because they could have known this is what rent will increase every year. I can count on it. And it is something that is doable for my family. Um, whereas the jumps that those families have seen, $150 rent increase all at once is something that folks can't can't live with.
1: Right. I think that's an important uh, point that you um, uh, that you make here right at the end, which is that rent stabilization is fairly well targeted to the uh, the issue of housing stability. Right. It does uh, uh, it it, um, among the things that it does. um, This is one that you can sort of really point to as being one of the uh, outcomes of rent stabilization. Um, it gives families uh, a certain amount of predictability in terms of what the rent is, is going to be going forward. And you sort of led uh, some of your remarks uh, early in our conversation about displacement. Um, and, um, and I think that's probably one thing rent stabilization does pretty well is, is to help prevent displacement.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And the research that y'all did showed that.
1: Uh, yeah, and it showed um, uh, in our analysis anyway of the the Minneapolis market um, that would it would have its major impact on the very large rent increases that were occurring in the market um, for most of the period that we studied from 2001 to 2019. Most rent increases were pretty modest and probably would not have been affected too much by a uh, by a rent cap. Um, but uh, in the post-crisis uh, years, after the foreclosure crisis, when rents uh, began to uh, increase and you started seeing larger rent increases, that's when the 1A uh, program might have had its, its biggest impacts to avoid those kinds of uh, uh, large increases. So, um, what do you um, so so the other thing uh, perhaps before we uh, think about uh, going to some questions that we' we're, we're, we're getting is um, you know the, the the I'd like to talk about the the strategies you are pursuing and your organization is pursuing to um, to make the argument uh, in favor of rent stabilization uh, the opponents, uh have uh have raised close to four million dollars and are spending that um and uh you don't quite have those resources and so i'm wondering um are you worried about uh getting your message out um and how are you sort of approaching that
2: yeah definitely i mean i think looking at the opposition's four million dollars you can see it's coming from big developers and it's coming from folks around the country right it shows fear specifically, I would name of the St. Paul policy. So we haven't gotten to this, but in Minneapolis and St. Paul, we have a different situation. So we're, we all have to have something on the ballot because of preemption at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, but in St. Paul, there is a policy on the ballot, whereas in Minneapolis, there is the authorization for a policy on the ballot, basically a change to the city charter. And that's because the Minneapolis and St. Paul charters are different. So I think the opposition has has looked at both places and, and fought against it, but I see them fighting harder in St. Paul because of the specifics of the policy. Um, uh, don't get me wrong, I think whatever the specifics of the policy would be, they would fight hard. It's because they're at the that point in the process. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we do what we can do best, which is um, talk to voters, uh, which is what we've been doing in both campaigns, is, is going out and knocking doors and calling, calling folks on the phone. And I think something important to name here is that renters, of course, are the folks who, can, who are most likely to vote in favor of a policy like this. And actually, if you look at the polling, it shows that folks, I think it's over 45, are much more likely to vote against it than folks under um, and I would name that it's probably about proximity to renting what it means to have, have, you know, ha- have experience in the rental market that you can remember. And also, you know, I think life has been different for my generation and younger who have been more likely to, to rent for longer because of the housing crisis and what it did to our prospects economically. Um, and, and, And so I think we're doing what what we can do best, which is talking to people, getting into apartment buildings, um, uh, urging people to vote. We know that the electorate in both Minneapolis and St. Paul tends to be older and white and homeowning on average. And so for us, it's both about getting folks who are less likely to vote to come out and vote um, and and do some persuasion with folks who are, are, are likely
1: voters. So you made an important distinction between the St. Paul and the Minneapolis efforts, um, noting that in Minneapolis the ballot initiative is really about getting authorization, uh, so that the council uh, and mayor can then pursue a process of developing a uh, a policy. Um, do you have uh, particular things uh, you would like to see in a in a policy? Because I think. One of the things that we, uh, we saw in the study that, that we did for the city is that the, the potential outcomes of a rent stabilization program depend fairly uh, importantly on the, the specific uh, design elements of the, uh, of the program. Um, yeah. Are there some things you'd like to see out of, uh, out of this effort in Minneapolis?
2: Yeah, that's a great question you know, we're still negotiating in our coalition with what we think the best policy will be. I like I like the option that St. Paul put on the ballot and I think it gives us a really good starting point to discuss. Um, the key questions are going to be, what is the percent increase, right? So in St. Paul, that's 3%. And then the second one is what what are the carve outs? Like what are the buildings that it doesn't apply to? So we know places where Single-family homes are carved out, and I just want to name that if that were to happen in Minneapolis, this would that would be a serious racial justice issue. The north side, where so many Black families live, is populated primarily with single-family homes. So, and now they're being rented, you know, uh, sometimes by private equity companies to folks living on the north side. So it feels very important that that exemption is not made. Um, sometimes there are exemptions called. Uh, um vacancy decontrol, which is when someone moves out of an apartment, the landlord can raise the rent however much they want. Um, in St. Paul, that exemption is not in place. And I would agree. I don't think there should be vacancy decontrol. I think it weakens the policy. Um, and then I think the last question is usually about um, exempting buildings within a certain amount of time when they've been built. In St. Paul, again, there is no exemption. The the policy goes into place from the minute it's built. And the justification is that the developer can set the price at whatever they want to set it at. Um, And so I I think that's a great policy. And I also know that we have a lot to negotiate here in Minneapolis. We're in a different situation. And we will have to negotiate about all of those pieces um, as as we come up with our version of the policy.
1: Right. I, um, I'd like to stay with the vacancy decontrol for one second, just to make sure that we've defined it um, fully, right? Vacancy control or decontrol simply refers to whether the caps remain in place when a vacancy in a unit occurs. Um, vacancy decontrol will allow for an owner or landlord to then increase the rent at, uh, to any level when there is a vacancy, and then when the new uh, household is in place, then the caps uh, continue from that point forward. A vacancy control uh, doesn't allow that, right? And then there are some options in between for a partial decontrol, et cetera. Um, I think it's probably also worth noting that uh, when we modeled the market in Minneapolis over the last 15 years, we assumed vacancy control, and uh, and the figures, the numbers seem to indicate that investors could still realize their uh, desired rates of return, even uh, in that scenario. Um, uh, that had to do with the prevailing um, market at the time. So sorry to go on about that, um, but uh, I thought that was probably worth... Uh, um,
2: well, I mean, and what matters about it is that the St. Paul policy was written using the research that you all did, um, and the 3% that was put in that that is that is on the ballot in St. Paul actually comes out of that research, which I think you could talk to at greater length.
1: Yes, but, um, uh, and I, and, and we may, um, but there are some questions we've been getting some interesting questions. Uh, through the Q&A feature, and I thought that I might want to uh, uh, go to a couple of those. Some of those questions take us back to previous points, which I'll try to get to, but there's one here about uh, rent stabilization versus rent subsidies, um, and whether those approaches uh, may conflict, or are they policies that can coexist and be co-beneficial? Jennifer, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, I think I think that they can coexist and are co-beneficial. I think there's different ways to do rent subsidies, um, but you know, if you're talking about vouchers, for example, I believe that we should expand our voucher program that we have in the state of Minnesota because right now, most families who apply for a voucher are on the waiting list for years. Before, you know, the, the waiting list, I think, is going to open up November 4th. It's always notable. It opens for a day and it gets so many people on the list that that it it, it uh, people don't get vouchers for years after signing up. So I believe that it should be expanded. And the nice thing about pairing the policies together is actually that. Then we know when we're publicly subsidizing a, a, a tenant's rent, that the, the rent is fair. Um, because right now, the you know there's a bunch of regulations around vouchers that can make it complicated and limit where the tenant can um, actually spend the voucher because if it's too expensive, uh, the, the tenant isn't allowed to use the voucher in that housing. Um, and so I think some kind of controls on the amount that rent goes up actually benefits the, the, the voucher system. I don't know if you have any additions to that, Ed, but that's sort of my reaction.
1: Right, I think that they 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 are complementary approaches. I think that uh, the subsidies face ongoing kinds of budgetary pressures. That is, every year, the legislative body, whether it's a city council or a state legislature or Congress, has to sort of budget that money in, and um, and that can uh, that can limit um, uh, expenditures over time. Um, uh, the other thing that's worth noting is you know most low-income families don't live in subsidized housing. Uh, we just don't have a lot of subsidized housing in the United States. Most low-income families are living in the private uh, uh, market and uh, and so for them uh, subsidies aren't a possibility and uh, and that's where uh, other alternative uh, approaches may uh, may come in handy. Um, so let's go back to uh, the, um, the, uh, the conversation we were having about doubling up, um, uh, because we have a question here about whether doubling up is always uh, a negative thing, um, where sometimes intergenerational uh, living is, uh, is by design and can have uh, uh, you know, positive effects and outcomes. Um, Jennifer, what's your, uh, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, I think it's fundamentally about choice. Who gets to make the decision about that, right? Like, I, I, I think it's great that people choose to double up and live together. I think there's so many benefits in that. And is it happening because of a family feeling forced because of the cost of rent? Or is it happening because the family's choosing to do that? So, I mean, I think that's fundamentally the question is who gets to decide um, what's happening there. Um, and also, is the, is the housing, is there space enough for the people who are there? Um, and again, that should be a question that the family gets to decide. I, yeah, it's not a question that, that I feel like I need to answer for a family. How much space do you need? I think, I think folks get to decide that for themselves. But what we're naming is, and the research shows, is that people are making this decision because they feel forced to, not because it's a decision that they're freely coming to.
1: Um, we're being asked to sort of uh, elucidate a little bit more the arguments um, uh, against rent stabilization and rent control. Um, and so uh, these are, um, are, uh, are topics that uh, we covered in the, in the report that we did. Um, uh, and we looked at uh, studies, empirical studies of the way rent stabilization programs have operated around the country to see the extent to which these uh, these negative outcomes uh, occur. And uh, I think the first uh, uh, argument against it is that it will be a disincentive to new development um, so that developers will uh, stop or slow down the building of new rental housing uh, when there are rent controls uh, Institute. Uh, the second is that uh, rent stabilization may produce a decline in maintenance um, and, therefore, a decline in the quality uh, of the housing uh, as well. Um, uh, and, uh, and the third uh, argument against it is that it may actually uh, reduce the uh, amount of housing and or affordable housing in the marketplace, as uh, as landlords or other owners will remove units from the market either through demolition or through conversion to condominiums to uh, take them out of uh, out of the rented stock. Um, and uh, our study showed that um, uh, that in in fact most rent stabilization programs are designed in ways that make those outcomes uh, less problematic than most people fear. In terms of the new construction, uh, there are usually exemptions for new construction for 15 years, sometimes longer. Uh, Jennifer, you've made an argument that even without an exemption, uh, new development may uh, may not be uh, affected. Um, but generally speaking, we don't see that uh, outcome in uh, uh, across the country in, in programs. The maintenance program, uh, the maintenance effect, um, the research, the, the the research really shows that major components of uh, a building's health, um, the major structural components, uh, typically do not suffer because most programs allow. Owners to pass those costs through, um, uh, and, and these become exceptions to the uh, uh, to the rent cap. So, uh, natural disasters, another tornado, uh, hopefully not through the city, causing that kind of uh, uh, those kinds of problems, or even if your 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 boiler uh, goes or your roof goes, um, are typically capital improvements that are allowed to be passed along. Uh, in an amortized uh, way to to renters. Um, The research does find, however, that smaller and more cosmetic uh, maintenance does sometimes suffer as as owners um, sort of shift their their spending uh, patterns. And then the other uh, outcome that I think the the literature shows is that in fact, in some places, landlords and owners do pull units off of the market and they do so by converting to condominium sometimes when there are exemptions for owner occupied or for the family of owners we see that exemption being um, being utilized more frequently and then we see in some cases actual outright demolition of units and the rebuilding of new units um if there is a new construction exemption so um so those things uh, do tend to happen uh, uh occasionally in the market um jennifer what are your sort of reactions to to those
2: yeah i guess i think a couple things one is that this never was a policy that was going to solve all problems with the housing market and so um I think, you know, it it is one thing and it does a certain set of things really well within the market. Um, I think it needs to be paired with other strategies, which include, you know, public housing development and other, other public investments in housing to counteract some of the, for example, if there is less housing in the market as a result, um, I, you know, like, like you were naming, I'm not worried that people are gonna stop developing because I think I think that's a threat that's just always used by the landlord lobby. I've heard that too many times when implementing other kinds of policies. Um, and, and I think the research doesn't bear it out. Um, so I don't think it's gonna break anything, right? And we get to do other things as well to counteract some of the other impacts that it has. I think the, the benefits for renters are so strong that it's worth doing anyway. And the other thing I would name about repairs is that, you know, we primarily work in buildings where we start the conversation around repairs. There already exists in the Twin Cities, serious repair issues in certain sets of buildings and, and landlords that are specifically, I would say, targeting Black, immigrant, Indigenous and people of color to... To actually exploit through practices that are about not making repairs, and a rent stabilization policy actually gives people more leverage. More, you know, the power relationship between a landlord and tenant is very—it's—it's it's really clear. And um, having a little bit more assurance about what it means for your rent when you ask for repairs actually supports the tenant in being able to leverage the things that they can to get the repairs that they need. Um, And so I think, you know, the question about repairs actually, um, you know, a policy is helpful for people. Um, So, you know, that's generally where I land. And and the reminder again, that this is not a panacea. This is not the policy that solves the housing crisis. It never was supposed to be. It's the policy that's about keeping people in their homes. And and actually I think of it as a Band-Aid in a moment of crisis, which is what we're in. And then we need to keep fighting to To actually get justice in housing, which means, you know, a right to a home. Um, it should we should live in a society where we have a home for everybody who lives here.
1: A more fundamental uh, question, to be sure. Yes. Um, we're seeing a number of questions that, uh, in one way or another, relate to concerns about uh, limiting revenues of. Uh, of land of landlords and property owners um to begin to get at that one of the questions is what what are the sensible numbers for a rent cap should it be six percent should it be higher lower one mayoral candidate is calling for three percent like the saint paul uh like the saint paul um program um what is your sense about uh what a uh, uh reasonable or effective rent uh, cap would be?
2: Yeah. I mean, again, I think this is something that is still up for negotiation. Um, But when I think about our membership, I think about what does this mean for them? That's really where I have to start. And I know that a $50 rent increase, which is a 5% cap in a $1,000 building or $1,000 rental unit is, is too high for our membership. Um, I I and this is why you know organizationally I know that our members are going to want a three percent cap um, because this is what this is what I think our members can uh, understand will work for them year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know I think there's questions within that as what is you know what does it mean if we're in a time of increased inflation and what does it mean? So I'm I'm interested in thinking about what is flexibility. In in something like that mean. But I know that right now, 3% is what our members can put up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I just want to name is that landlord profits are not something that is publicly talked about or looked at. Um, the only reason that I have any sense of this at all is that we have been in, we have been in court with landlords. And you know, one of the landlords that we had a large public fight against for five years. Through a court process, we discovered that that he had 70% profit margins, um, which is insane. And I'm not saying that all landlords have that. I I don't think that's a common thing. And um, it's incredible that that is a possibility in, in landlording as it is now. That is an incredible profit margin that is basically taking working people's income to subsidize. And so, you know, I'm interested in if there's gonna be exemptions, let's look at your books. Let's see what's there. You know, we need some light on this. We need transparency to understand what, what will work. All uh,
1: right, and for, um, for reference, uh, our study showed a, a wide range of rent caps. Um, the most lenient, I think we saw in the state of Oregon, which allows rent caps at the uh, rate of inflation, which is the consumer price index, plus 7%. So uh, for many years, that's that's an allowable uh, set of rent increases up to about 10%. And so in that situation, that law is clearly just an anti-gouging law. That's where it will only have its effects. On the other end of the extreme is, is not St. Paul, by the way, it's, um, it's Berkeley, California, uh, which sets its cap at 65% of the consumer price index. So it's set at a level that will never actually equal inflation rate, no matter what the inflation rate is. And Santa Monica, California also has set it at a percentage of the consumer price index. So uh, anywhere between those, um, is our uh, levels that um, uh, that communities have used uh, uh, and chosen across the uh, across the country and so there's um, there's a uh, that will be an interesting as you say negotiating point um, should the uh, should the initiative uh, pass in uh, in Minneapolis yeah yeah um, let me see what uh, what other questions we may have here. Um, I'm old enough to uh, remember vividly year after year of double-digit inflation. St. Paul's rent stabilization proposes limits at 3% rather than tying them to the rate of inflation. How can we be confident that inflation will not reduce real rent levels year after year uh, and thereby lead to dis- uh, disinvestment? Do you want to try that or you want to let me?
2: <laughs> I would I would love for you to answer that.
1: <laughs> well, um, so I, I don't know that there is a way we can be uh, confident of that. I think what we can be confident of uh, is that should uh, inflation rates remain pretty high. First of all, I think it's the case that the majority of the St. Paul City Council has come out uh, against the uh, rent stabilization uh, proposal. Um, and uh, my strong sense is, therefore, that probably as soon as they are statutorily able to amend that program, they probably will do so. Um, and I guess that's my uh, anticipation uh, in, in, in in response to this question, which is a great question. Um, my guess is, I mean, rent stabilization programs are amended quite frequently. New York City just went through a big amendment. It does so every so many years. Um, so I, I, what I anticipate uh, is should a program like the St. Paul program be uh, enacted and, uh, and should it prove to be uh, problematic for any reason including the one that was described here uh, my guess is that uh, it will be amended uh, and it will be changed uh, in ways that um, uh, that are responsive um, that is what one would hope uh, from a, a functioning legislative uh, body um, and it was uh, and it would be what we would need to have happen as well so. Do we know what percentage of Twin Cities rental housing is owned by individuals versus corporations and how have those percentages been changing?
2: I like that question.
1: <laughs> yeah. Important. What, what would be your answer to it then?
2: I, you know, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, I do know. Um I, I remember there was a study in the city of Minneapolis about the percentage of rental licenses that are owned by you know, like larger companies versus mom and pop. Um, I'm not remembering the details, but I know that that has changed over time. Um, In Minneapolis, we're not seeing like a, like a takeover of corporate landlords. And by that, I mean like private equity, really big money. We are seeing them start to invade and encroach in the market. They have not like taken it over yet at this point. Um, However, most rental housing is owned, I think it's something like 80% of the rental housing is owned by a, you know, a small set of companies and the remaining 20% is more like small landlords. Um, and you know there are, I don't know if you all know about, there's like Invitation Homes and, and Pretium Partners. These, these are two large private equity companies that do own homes in the Twin Cities and specifically on the north side of Minneapolis and parts of St. Paul. Predium Partners, which is the second largest single family homeowner in the country, um, owns, owns a bunch of single family homes. And those changes we started to see after the great recession, after 2008, um, those private equity companies sort of sprung up and started buying the homes that were foreclosed um, during during the market crash. And so we're at a good time to implement policies like this and other policies that can stop outside money, private equity specifically from coming in and buying up homes. And the reason that I would name that that's really problematic is that private equity is, there's no transparency. So it's, you know, they're owning all these homes, treating people really poorly. We're, we're organizing with folks renting from Pretium Partners and see this. Um, and it's very hard to get accountability because um, the, the money is dispersed and the people live far away. Um, and, and so it's really hard to get accountability on what's happening in those homes.
1: Right, we're trying to get a a handle on this question through research that we're doing uh, at Cura. And uh, it's true, we are seeing an uptick in in LLC ownership. Um, We're seeing an increase in non-local ownership. What's what's interesting is that the trend certainly uh, kicked upward after the foreclosure crisis. But you began to see it even in the, in the few years right before uh, the foreclosure crisis. And from 2002 and two and three on, you, you start to see uh, this phenomenon increase. But it does uh, uh, spike a bit after uh, the foreclosure crisis for the reasons you described. Um, uh, it's a difficult uh, question to, um, uh, to research because uh, the ownership is not very transparent uh, in most uh, public databases. Um, you have uh, uh, lots of uh, firsthand information on it. We're trying uh, to get um, a more uh, uh, systematic uh, assessment of it. Uh, we're at early stages. Um, what will be the Minneapolis process for setting a policy uh, if the ballot Uh, question passes. Does it ever go back uh, to the voters?
2: That is a great question. So the specific language on the ballot allows for the city council to implement a policy or for the city council to write a policy and put it to voters again. And it's not clear yet what's going to happen first because, you know, um, because it's clear that if the city council were to write a policy that it would be legally challenged and it may not pass the state law, the preemption law, which requires a policy to be voted on by the majority of the population through a referendum, majority of voters. And so um, it's unclear whether or not the vote this fall is enough to pass that or if we're gonna need a second referendum on the specifics of the policy. And so um, I would say most likely Minneapolis voters will get a chance to vote on the policy, Um, but it will be written specifically by the council, and there will be a process to get there. So it's not clear if that will happen in 2022 or in 2023, Um, but most likely it will happen.
1: And if it does go back, if there is another round of voter approval, we're talking about uh, uh, another year, um, right? Because it has to go back onto the fall uh, ballot, right? So that would that would put off the date of implementation?
2: Correct, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again, that's really because of Minneapolis' city charter that we were not able to put a policy directly on the ballot this year.
1: Right, all right, thank you, uh, Jennifer. And, and thank you uh, more broadly for the, uh, for the conversation. I appreciate uh, your uh, coming uh, to us today and, uh, and participating in this conversation. I will um, uh, hand it back to Professor Jacobs now, uh, but thank you again.
0: Thanks to both of you for um, a very informative uh, conversation. Uh, We appreciate it. um, And it's really, I think, helped to um, widen our understanding of uh, the housing questions in the Twin Cities and how we got to this point. Uh, Once again, I wanna thank you for joining us. um, And I wanna thank our terrific guests Ed Goetz, and Jennifer Arnold. Thank you and have a great day.